Welcome, everyone, to tonight's episode of Culture Shock. I am your host, Will, and today we're going to talk about that thing that no one wants to talk about. Yeah. No, we're not, I'm not talking about what's happening in the world today. Well, I am, but not what's happening overseas in the world today. I want to talk about a little thing that most of us have probably felt. And it's one of those, you know you have it, you, you know you've experienced it, and you may not really understand why or what drives it. And what I'm talking about is the, the real reason, the simple truth as to why executives treat their employees so poorly. It all starts with a premise, and the premise is stock buybacks. Now, stock buybacks are the opium of the CEO, and they're truly the underlying cause of all the antagonism towards employees that we have felt for over the past four decades. If you want to be treated like humans, help end the once illegal stock buyback program. Stock buybacks have become so common and so automatic that they are now the opium of all CEOs at publicly traded corporations. So enticing, so juicy, so yummy that these CEOs can't resist doing them in spite putting the company's financial future in peril. This episode will show you how stock buybacks became legal and why they have proven to be financial Armageddon to the employees and how we might be able to shove them back into the genie's bottle. Are you old enough to remember 1982? While you were spending your hard-earned dollars at the movie theater watching E.T. and Grease 2, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, was adopting Rule 10B-18. Prior to that, it was illegal for corporations to purchase their own stock off the stock market for the purposes of destroying it, causing the overall pool of available shares to shrink, which, in turn, causes the price of the remaining shares to go up just a bit. It's the mathematical equivalent of poisoning all the wells in your town to drive up the value of the bottled water you have stored in your garage. Stock buybacks were illegal prior to 1982 because such behavior was considered stock price manipulation. In other words, it was illegal to buy and destroy stock for the sole purpose of driving up the stock price. Simple enough, right? In practice, stock buybacks have no real appreciable value to the overall success of the corporation. Quite literally, the opposite. They don't increase sales, they don't develop new products or services, they don't build new factories, they don't cause new markets to open up. Nope. Stock buybacks are the vaporization of a corporation's free cash for the sole goal of taking up the stock a few points to trigger those juicy executive bonuses. So, to summarize, and I'll do this a couple of times, before 1982, stock buybacks were price manipulation. After 1982, they were price manipulation. See the difference? No? That's because it's still price manipulation. To understand how this juxtaposition is now legal, you have to attend college at the University of Rochester in 1976. Prior to the mid-1970s, the purpose of a corporation's executive team was to grow a company by increasing sales and reducing operating costs. They did this with rational behavior like, I don't know, creating new products, improving existing products, reducing costs, creative marketing, etc. Quite literally, growing the company. After 1976, that all changed. 
Two finance professors named Jensen and Meckling at the University of Rochester published a paper unassumingly titled Theory of the Firm, Managerial Behavior, Agency Cost, and Ownership Structure. In summary, it said that the executive team's only goal should be to increase shareholder value through stock price increases. Their primary focus should be the stock price, not the company itself. At least, that's how the wrong people interpreted it. Executives read that paper and firewalled the throttles on their biz jets back into the boardrooms. They burst through the doors with new stone tablets that had only one commandment. Thou shalt goose the shit out of the quarterly stock price. To reward themselves, they turned their incentive structure on its head, tying bonuses to stock price targets. All they had to do was make sure the stock price in 90 days was higher than it was today. By any means necessary. The problem was, it was hard to make that happen, except through hard work, occasional accounting fraud, pension looting, or the good old standby of mass layoffs. See Activision, they're good at that. So despite this new C-level strategy shift, it was still tricky to be a CEO. But a few years later, in 1982, the SEC handed executives a solution on a silver platter by adopting the now infamous 10B-18 ruling. Welcome to the Stock Repurchase Program. Never had it been so easy to manipulate stock prices at the push of a button. To twist a phrase by Warren Buffett, that fucking asshole, so easy even a monkey could do it. In this case, a monkey that's paid millions of dollars in salary to push said button. Say hello to endless executive bonuses! The irony was that many of these stock price bumps are not long-lived, so they don't usually benefit the average shareholder. Let it be known that their primary raison d'etre was to trigger executive bonuses. Remember when I talked about that? You tie your executive bonus to the stock price increase, stock goes up, bonus is triggered, person gets money. To top it off, many of these corporations destroy the shares, only to later recreate them to sell to employees in lieu of, I don't know, good salaries. So in effect, the whole destructive behavior ends up being a wash, except for those bonus triggers. Gone were the days of doing hard work to build a company through improved sales. In were the days of grinding through any and all available spare cash for a short-term bump in quarterly stock price. And grind they did. To put into perspective how cataclysmic the destruction of corporate cash has been, it's estimated that approximately $1.6 trillion in spare corporate cash has been vaporized on stock buybacks since 2018 alone. That was only four years ago. Imagine how much internal growth and investments those same dollars could have generated if used as a tool instead of being incinerated. Perhaps to build new factories? Improve efficiency? Hire more employees? Pay employees more? Nope. Just burn the cash. Vaporize it. Torture it. Give me that short-term bonus. Financial journalists went along for the ride, too, digging deep to try to convince us that stock buybacks are a good thing. One common refrain from the Wall Street sycophants is that increasing stock price helps corporations get advantageous loan rates. Okay. The company's doing good, which is reflected by the stock price, you get a lower interest rate. Kind of like your credit score and a lower car rate. Makes sense. That's all well and good, 
But that's pointless given that companies could just use their available cash instead to self-fund any expansion and avoid paying interest on those loans. To really muddy the waters, some corporations borrow money at those advantageous interest rates for the sole purpose of using the borrowed money on more stock buybacks. It's like using credit cards to pay off your other credit card balances. Is this starting to make sense? There's nothing good long-term that comes from stock buybacks except the triggering of executive bonuses. Even the Wall Street Journal is starting to consider stock buybacks as a trick for transferring shareholder wealth into the pockets of executive as bonuses. Fun factoid, the Wall Street Journal is owned by Amazon. More importantly, it's owned by Jeff Bezos. Are we really getting good financial advice from the Wall Street Journal? Does anybody actually read it? I don't. Moving on. So, okay. You're wondering, how do stock buybacks hurt the middle class? I don't buy stock. You don't buy stock. Well, you might buy stock, but how is this hurting you? Well, they actually put a huge drain on the nation as a whole. They allow executives to attack to act on the most horrendously irresponsible manner to benefit themselves or the well-being of the corporation, and then come crawling back for bailouts every time the stock market takes a dump. To put it into perspective, airlines use the 96% of their available cash on stock buybacks. That's right, folks. You heard me correctly. Virtually all of their money, their rainy day money, their growth money, their reinvestment money, money that could have been spent on better services and schedules, it was all converted to dust so that the executives could goose the quarterly, quarterly stock price enough to trigger a flood of bonuses. It's important to note, however, that the 96% of cash they destroyed did not necessarily result in 96% worth of increased value. No, 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 no. The benefit overall is usually less, far less. So if you're looking to hire a CEO that can convert a large fortune into a small fortune, just get yourself an airline executive. Now, I'm going to pause in my thought train and take you back. I'm going to take you back to 2008. Remember when gas was about $4 a gallon? God, that just seems like yesterday. Oh, wait. And the housing market crashed. The banking crashed. Everything crashed. We went into a recession. Guess who got bailouts? Wasn't us. Sure. I believe, what, W was president, George W. Bush. We got that little that little stimulus. Here's some stimmy money. It was like $300 or some shit like that. Meanwhile, the banks and the housing market got billions in taxpayers' dollars because they fucked up. They caused the crash to happen because you have no more available funds and the interest on your loans is coming due. You're not reinventing your business. You're not invigorating new capital. You are just trying to pay Peter by robbing Paul. And eventually Paul goes, hey, fucker, I'm out of money. But I digress. I think it's safe to say that if any industry needs a rainy day fund, it's the airline industry. It gets hammered by fuel price fluctuations and stock market crashes. But instead of acting like a responsible parent, the airlines have acted like that deadbeat uncle that blows all of his money and winds up sleeping in a gutter. The financial mismanagement via stock buybacks has another more sinister side to it as well. Many corporations are wasting billions on stock buybacks for the sole purpose of triggering only, air quotes here, only millions in executive bonuses. Again, see Activision. 
So much emphasis is placed on the so-called intrinsic efficiency of companies that is truly criminal that they would waste so much of a valuable resource, their free cash, for such little benefit to them. Again, look at that airline thing. Executives that lean on the stock buyback per button do not have the best interest of the corporation in mind. If a company performs stock buybacks, you should all call them out on their bullshit. If stock buybacks were still illegal, as they should be, there would have been trillions of available dollars over the years that could have been reinvested in businesses. Think of how many new jobs, new products, and new factories that could have been created. Fuck, they could have just paid it out as huge dividends to the shareholders. But those dividends don't trigger executive bonuses. You see the trend here? Since 1982, executives have been artificially converting trillions of available company cash into billions worth of bonuses, straight into their pockets while screwing employees, shareholders, and the nation out of so much potential growth. In fact, just because moving factories overseas also gooses the quarterly stock price, there goes that bonus trigger again, executives have been surgically dismantling this nation from above. So what can we do? If you want to correct what has been a soul-sucking albatross around the neck of every working American for four fucking decades, make stock buybacks illegal again. Permanently. Stop allowing them to vaporize the future of this nation. Oh, it'll be difficult. The addiction to stock buybacks is so strong that the fight to make them illegal could unleash the greatest propaganda campaign in America history. American history. But keep strong knowing that stock buybacks are the driving force behind all the poor executive decisions in the past 40 years. We could do it. Well, possibly we could do it. The only way I see something like this actually happening is if we, the people, the masses, the voters, take our elected officials to task. By task, I mean removing them all completely. All of them. All of them have to go because they're bought and paid for by these companies, by these executives. You think, you think Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos do not have senators, congressmen, representatives, mayors in their pocket? Anyone that makes laws or has anything to do with laws is being paid off by these people so that they can stay super rich. You see any laws trying to tamper or temper their wages? You see any laws trying to put into effect a capital gains tax or a capital wealth tax or a wealth tax? Because we all know billionaires and trillionaires don't pay taxes. It's all in capital gains. Or it's hidden in offshore accounts. Again, see Activision. I saw a meme the other day. Hi, my name's Will. You're still on Culture Shock, by the way. We took a short break. I'm probably going to leave some dead air in there or something. Anyway, I saw a meme the other day. It was a statement from one of those rich douchebags that, you know, the, the trend that's going around. The stop buying avocado toast in Starbucks and you'll stop being poor. And it got me thinking, you know, no matter how hard I try, I can't budget my way out of poverty. And that's that's legit. I mean, I live below, if you just count my income, I live below the poverty line. If you count my wife's income, which is 
it's okay. We just barely we're scratching at that that poverty line. But we're poverty. I make just over thirty thousand a year. That's it. That's all I make. And you think about because I rent, because I don't have a choice, the housing market's garbage. What it takes for me to even do something as simple as buy a house, get a place of my own to live that I own. I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago and she was talking about the second property she had owned and how she leased it out to this couple. They went through some struggles and they worked it out. It turned into a land contract deal and they bought the house. And she didn't directly imply that I should go buy a house. I mean, I was talking about it. I think I brought it up to her. Whatever. But I, I made a valid point. Most places around this area, for a house of my own, I'm looking at around $100,000. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot. Barring a decent credit score, that doesn't seem like a lot. Except that most of these places want 20% down. Now, you do the math, and 20% of $100,000 is $20,000. Okay, I make just over $30,000, so two-thirds of my income I need to save. Save in order to put a down payment on a house. It is literally impossible for me to do that. Impossible. There's, there's, no, there's no way. It's fucking impossible to save two-thirds of my income. Sure, I could cancel my Netflix account. I could cancel my internet. I could stop having a cell phone. I could, I don't know, stop having heat and electricity. And I still wouldn't be able to save two-thirds of my income just to buy a house because uh, my rent would be over half of what income I was saving left. There's, that's gone. It's gone. Just, just to live where I am now, half of what I had left is gone. Not to mention car. I have two cars. I could walk to work, but weather's shit. And I have a baby. You ever try to afford a baby? I can tell you what I would make, what I would have left, about 10000 or so, would be majority gone just to her. For her basic needs. Fucking my needs, like food, clothing, heat... A place to live, the ten thousand I would have left would just be gone. It is impossible for me in my position to buy a house right now. Impossible, impossible, completely. So I got to thinking about budgeting my way out of poverty and how impossible it is. You can't budget your way out of poverty. I once saw a financial advisor on the advice of someone who thought that was the solution. After putting together my budget. It came down to eliminate anything that creates any kind of happiness. Eat nothing but rice and beans, no coffee, no cigarettes, no entertainment, whatever gets you through the night, and the bottom line, still losing money. Only without anything that would make life living a little easier to bear. Austerity, look at that word up, by the way. It's a government program, but actually it's, it means with added sternness is not a solution when you're simply not making enough money to cover your bills. And I fully expect that someone is going to come at me about all this. Especially with the idea that people in poverty are allowed, air quotes, unnecessary things. It's not rich people that smoke. 
because they have other things they can do for a dopamine kick. Listen, if you advocate the removal of all of life's pleasures from people just because they are not getting paid enough, then you are either ignorant of your own privilege or you're sadistic. People deserve to thrive, not just to exist. The kicker here is, even if austerity did work, it doesn't account for emergencies. And I say this with all reality. I took my daughter last night to the emergency room. She had an inner ear infection and a fever. She needs health care. I have to pay for insurance. Which spiked thanks to fuck who knows what reason. There will always be unexpected expenses, like medical bills. And if you're poor, there will be more of them. If you have to choose between vehicle maintenance and your prescriptions, your car will inevitably break down. If there isn't sufficient flex in your budget for a doctor's visit, you're going to end up sicker. This is just the reality of living in poverty. Everything, everything costs money. And those who make the least are expected to take on the lion's share of the burden. For one more example, last month my car insurance was scheduled to be deducted from my bank account on the 3rd. I had a deposit coming in on the 1st. But instead of the 3rd, like I'd arranged for, it was deducted on the 30th. Guess who ate that 37 fucking dollar fee? Right, now someone out there is fuming that it was my bad planning that caused this. And that might even be true. But consider that, thanks to my employer, I get paid every other week. Well, why? I don't know. I have no idea why I get paid every other week. It makes absolutely no sense to me. This isn't the only job I've had that does this. Why Why bi-weekly? I don't get it. I, to me, it just seems like arrogance. I, I control your life because I can trip feed you your paycheck. You don't get paid every week, so you can't make your bills just float a few days. You have to plan that shit out, and you're miserable and you're stressed because there's never enough to get from week to week. And now it's week plus two weeks plus two weeks plus two weeks. Those who talk about budgeting as a solution seem to think that the poors don't know how to handle how much money they have. Or don't know how much money they have. Bruh, let me tell you something. If you're chronically broke, you know your bank balance down to the penny. My wife and I, we check our bank account daily. Daily. Even if we don't go to the store. Daily. Because you never know when an emergency comes up. You never know when the baby needs diapers or the baby needs formula and you're three days into the start of that second week and payday is four fucking days away. You don't know. In fact, if you want to easily identify someone dealing with poverty, ask how often they check their bank balance. Hmm. Funny. Every fucking day. Guarantee it's more often than the person telling them they should skip the latte. Why? Why? Why do we have to deprive people of happiness so that they can rise above? And it's not... Here's the, here's the kicker, and here's the thing that annoys me the most. They won't rise above. Even if I could budget properly, which I probably can't because I have money I spend it. Even if I could budget properly, there is a finite amount of income. Yeah, I could save a little, save a little, save a little, and eventually, long-term, way down the road, I could have something to actually do something with, but I'm still in fucking poverty. 
even if I could possibly save up 20 grand to buy a house, I'm still in poverty. My wage didn't increase. My wife's wage didn't increase. My expenses didn't go down. If anything, it went higher because now I have a mortgage for $80,000 fucking dollars for a house, for a place to live, a roof over my head so that I don't freeze to death on the fucking streets. But I'm still in poverty. But I have a house. Be thankful for what you have. Fuck that. Fuck that. And by the way, all landlords are scum. If you're a landlord, you're scum. You're scum. There's no debate. There's no constructive criticism. You're fucking scum. You are sitting on multiple properties that you don't need for the simple benefit to you of taking someone else's hard-earned money for no fucking effort on your behalf. You're scum. Fucking scum. So no, you can't budget your way out of poverty. I would love to see someone look at my finances and go, this is how you can budget yourself out of poverty. No, the only way I budget myself out of poverty is if I make more money. Make enough money so that I'm just not considered in poverty. How about that? Wouldn't that be a kick? Oh, so, and I know, I know, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I can hear it. I can hear it. Even through my microphone, I can hear it. Well, go to college. Yes, go to college and be straddled with tens of thousands, fifties, sixty, hundred thousand dollars of educational debt. For what? For what? To still be in fucking poverty? I look around because I work at a school. I know roughly what some of our teachers make. It's between 40,000 and upwards of 60, 80, 100,000, depending on their tenure or their specialty. And even that in this area is still poverty. It's still poverty. Yeah, they can do things like go on vacations or spend a lot of time with their kids or something like that. I spend time with my kids. It's not anything to do with what I make an hour. But they're still in poverty. You have to stop looking at the poverty levels, what the government says. Because if you look at it, $7.25 an hour is the federal minimum wage. Federal minimum. And some states still only pay that. Bare minimum, $7.25. They don't pay more. Here in Michigan, they pay, I think it's like $9.65 or $9.75. That's minimum wage in Michigan. Some states down south, seven fucking 25. By the way, Democrats, where's my 15 an hour? Oh yeah, by the way, Democrats can eat dick. Republicans too, they can all eat dick. 725 an hour. Now, you do the math on that. And while we're talking, I'm gonna pull out my phone. I'm gonna do the math on that. Doing some math, doing some math. Okay, calculator. 7.25 times... 40 a week. That's $290 before taxes. Before taxes. Okay? Multiply that by 52 weeks. If you work every week and every day that week with no time off, that's $15,000. That, according to the federal government, is the lowest of poverty. $15,000. What the fuck can you buy with $15,000? You can't even buy a car. A used car nowadays for $15,000. How are these people supposed to live? They're not. They're not. That's the kicker. That's it. They don't want you to live. They want you to fuck off and die. Or, or become so helplessly dependent on the government for handouts 
You know those handouts everyone's always bitching about? For handouts to survive. Because our government, the United States government, the United States of America, our government, in the richest country in the world, says our citizens aren't worth more than $15,000 a year before taxes. So if you make $100,000 a year, you're still in fucking poverty. Things look good. Things can look good for you, but you're at the high end of fucking poverty. Tell me, tell me that your mortgage is a reasonable rate. Tell me that your new car that you just bought is a reasonable rate. Or maybe you bought it outright in cash. What do you fucking do for you? But you're still in poverty. About the whole concept of poverty is it's just to keep you working. That's it. That's all it's designed for. To keep you working. To keep you a slave. A slave to capitalism. Now, I know. People don't want to hear that word. Oh, the S word. The S word. People don't want to hear that. You're a fucking slave. And you're so, you're so mentally built. By, by design. Because that's what schools do. You're mentally built to work. You know how? One of the things that really, really strikes me. Once once my eyes were open to it, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. The concept of homework, because I'm sitting in a classroom right now, the concept of homework, work at home, for nothing, by the way, work at home to further your education, which could just be added as extra days or a tighter, more structured curriculum. Work at home to, to ingrain in your mind the concept of giving more than your eight hours to your employee. That's all it's designed to do. You can say it's about education, and I can say you're full of shit. You're full of shit. Because all that homework I did when I was, did not help further my education. It didn't. I didn't get a full ride scholarship. Because I didn't apply myself. No, I applied myself, by the way. I went to college for a semester or two until I was tired of being taught how to think. And that's what these schools are ingrained to do. They're built, they're designed, they're structured to teach people how to think. Not think for themselves, how to think like the collective, the hive mind. Budget your way out of poverty. I fucking dare you. Go ahead and try. Go ahead and try. One last segment I want to do on this Will rant. Because that's what Will does. Will rants. Will rants because right now Will is working on a script for other actual culture stuff. Like pop culture. Like Batman. By the way, the new Batman movie is out tonight. It's out tonight. It's out tonight. And I don't get to go see it. But I know people who are going to see it. And maybe they're going to tell me that it's awesome. I really hope it is. One more rant that I want to do. And it's about inequality. We hear this word a lot. Inequality. Generally, when it refers to race. Generally. Most of the time when you hear about inequality, it has to do with race. What you're starting to hear, though, is the disgruntled version of inequality. The wealth inequality. Yes. Yes. This is a whole fuck capitalism episode. A whole goddamn episode is about fuck capitalism. But inequality. We all feel it. We all feel it. I, I walk around and I feel it every day. I, I see people that, because of a piece of paper, they make more than I do. 
because of a couple pieces of paper, they're somehow more valued than I am. And to quote a phrase that I know will maybe ruffle feathers or put a smile on someone's face, I'm invisible in my job. I have been so blatantly invisible. By the way, I'm a custodian. I, I take out trash. I clean for a living. It's, it's a modest job. I, I don't mind it. I actually like it. It's pretty fun. But I am so invisible because I'm a behind-the-scenes worker that I could be standing in a room having just emptied a trash can, and I will watch someone throw something away in that trash can that I just emptied when I'm five fucking feet away. If you're not smiling and laughing at that, then you need to relax more. Life is not that serious. Yes, this is a fuck capitalism rant, but life is not that serious. I take it in stride because, hey, job security. I'm, I'm more trash than empty. Can't get rid of me. I have to empty the trash. Who's going to empty the trash? No one's going to empty the trash if I'm gone. Anyway, back to inequality after I shared that funny little anecdote. The coronavirus. Yes, we're not supposed to talk about it. But it's been two fucking years and we have done nothing but talk about it. The coronavirus. The pandemic has laid bare the United States, actually most of the world. The stark in income inequality. This is specific to the United States, but it's felt pretty much everywhere. As wealthy Americans buy private tutoring and concierge COVID-19 testing, while the rest of the population struggles to get by. Aren't you tired of struggling? I am. But the country's income inequality problem was one 45 years in the making. A new report from the nonprofit think tank RAND finds that wages for all Americans increased at around the same pace as the economy from 1947 to 1974. But since 1975, the bottom 90% of earners saw wages increase at a fraction of the pace of the richest Americans, even as the economy continued to grow. Without income inequality, or if wages had continued to increase at the same rate as the overall GDP, which is gross domestic product, I believe, like they did in the 50s and 60s, the median salary would have been between $92,000 and $102,000 for a full-time employee. That would be median, the middle, the middle. The median income right now is half that, at $50,000. Remember when I said I make just over 30? Yeah. Poverty. The average wage of 44% of the workers before the pandemic was just 18000 per a bookings report. And a typical worker can no longer afford to care for a family of four on a year's salary. One person, the man, the male, cannot be the sole breadwinner. It's not possible. And as wage growth stalled for 90% of the workers, the average incomes of the top of 1% increased at a whopping 300% of the rate of economic growth. Quote, unlike the growth patterns in the 1950s and the 1960s, the majority of full-time workers did not share in the economic growth of the last 40 years. Mathematician Carter Price and Economy's Catherine Edwards, the paper's authors, wrote, During this time period, only the very top of the income distribution saw growth that matched or outpaced the real per capita GDP rate of the same time frame. Fucking eye-opening, isn't it? 
how the coronavirus pandemic laid bare all of America's crippling income inequality problems, Americans are working harder than ever, and the country has the world's richest economies. economy. But most people are still broke. Why? Since the 1970s, hourly compensation has increased, increased just 9.2%, while productivity, or the output of goods and services per hour worked, increased by 74.4% in the same time period. While a child born in 1945 had a 90% chance of making more than their parents, someone born in 1985, the year I was born, only has a 50% shot at faring better than their parents. It's easier to achieve the American dream in China, South Africa, and Brazil than it is in the U.S. Think about that for a second. Think about that and tell me how you can vote for our modern politicians. Think about that and sleep at night. Because of the country's high income inequality, Price and Edwards found that the bottom 90% of American workers lost out on about $50 trillion in earnings since 1975 due to income inequality, or roughly $2.50 a year through 2020. I don't think that math is right. I think that's supposed to be like a thousand or something. The repercussions of income inequality can be seen during the COVID-19 pandemic. The coof! As U.S. billionaires got a $637 billion richer since March when the pandemic started, while states received over 60 million unemployment claims in the same time period. MIT, you know, that fucking shithole, found that most of the jobs destroyed by the pandemic have been low-wage service sector gigs, roles that also can't easily social distance, and have been more susceptible to disease. Like, hotels, food service, retail. You know, those those things that the upper echelon like to lean on and spit on and call them, them stupid pores because they want to have avocado toast. Have you guys heard of what's called a V or U-shaped recession? What that is, is if you look at a graph, and you see, you draw a big V on it. The top part, right, top left part is the economy as it was doing. Really good, everybody's happy. And the downward is when the economy crashed. And then you see a sharp uptick as it goes back to finish the V as the economy rebounds. It's a V-shaped economy or recession. A U-shape, same principle, only it's a very sharp decrease followed by a slow bottoming out and then a slow then sharp increase back to normal. Again, not what we had during Corona. What we have is a K-shape where everything was fine and then multiple sectors just crashed and didn't recover. Those jobs are gone. We talked about no one wants to work. Those jobs are gone. No one wants to do them. Why, why would you want to stand, like today, today, I was at a pharmacy. I was at a pharmacy, and I watched the, the clerk behind the counter, who had already helped me, and I was waiting on her to fill my prescription so I could go, you know, tend to my sick baby. Watched her deal with a Karen, which is a slang term for a woman, generally, that is being obnoxious, entirely rude, and blaming said clerk, who just 
doing her job for all of her woes. There are male Karens, there are female Karens. It's not specific to people named Karen. But the slur still exists. Anyway, I was standing there and I was just kind of shaking my head at most people, most people that behave in this way have zero respect for service persons. That, that person ringing you up at Walmart, if you can actually find a person in open line at Walmart when it's not a fucking self-checkout, please see my other rant on that because it was glorious. That person doesn't deserve your animosity, doesn't deserve your hate, doesn't deserve your, your vileness because you are not getting exactly what you want the fucking second you want it. We have become overly entitled as Americans to where most countries don't want to deal with us because we're so rude. We have, we have that stereotype that all Americans are rude, obnoxious assholes. And we show it. We show it all of the time. Your, your, and this woman's problem was that she had gotten a prescription filled for diabetic supplies like testing strips and lancets, which are tiny little needles used to drop blood. She'd gotten her prescription sent to this pharmacy. They had filled it back in January. She didn't show up to pick it up, so they put it back on the shelf. And then they filled it for someone else, and the supplies are gone. Because she didn't do her due diligence. And well, well I, got, I didn't get an email saying, Lady, you probably did get an email. If not, you got a phone call. Because whenever I have put in a, a prescription to this pharmacy, I have gotten emails and phone calls. Your prescription is done. Come pick that shit up. And that's before, like, the date. The, we're going to fill it today. It's going to be fucking done by this time. But she just wouldn't accept any accountability, any responsibility for her part in this. And wanted to blame all of it, very rudely blame all of it on the pharmacy clerk which was absolutely unnecessary and this woman's like three people ahead of me in line so she walks off just mumbling under her breath that you're not thankful and you're you're very rude to me and blah 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 and i didn't say anything to her because i'm not going to get in a fight with a karen okay i got other shit to do with my life the guy behind her had already been upset because they were like six people deep in line and he was not happy. He had shit to do. So he was very nice to the clerk and got his stuff and left. The woman in front of me didn't have her stuff. She had to wait a little bit. So she, you know, fucked off to walk around the store. But she was also, you know, fairly decent. And I told the lady when I got up to the counter because she recognized me. I hadn't left the store yet. And I said, don't let it get to you. You're doing a wonderful job. Because I talked to her like an hour before. Yeah, I waited an hour for my prescription. But that's fine. They were busy. There's cars lined up outside. There's people lined up in the store. They're shorthanded because what fucking place isn't? You don't get to take your rage out on clerks that are just doing their job. And probably not doing their job for much money. Like, you can't pay me enough to deal with with shitty people. I don't, I don't, I, no, I don't handle that. And we're actually starting to see a trend. I know, we're way off topic. We're actually starting to see a trend where service workers are fighting back. And I maintain, and I don't care what 
what company you're in, you maintain the right to refuse service. Unruly customer, sorry, I can't help you. I, can't, I won't help you. I won't help you because of the way you're acting. Now, I have seen, I have seen unruly customers in management of the places I work bend over backwards to try to make them happy. When I would have just, I don't have to help you. Oh, you want to purchase? I don't care. I don't care. I don't care because you're yelling at me. You're yelling at me for something I can't control. And that's that's the crux of it all. These, these clerks, these service people, can't, they don't control the company. They don't control the prices, for sure. They're given a stack of fucking ads, price changes, and said, go put those out. They don't get to say, this is too much. They don't have that, that power, that authority. So when your fucking bottle of Pepto-Bismol jumps $3, you just fucking eat the cost. The clerk can't do anything about it. They're not going to ring it up lower than, you know, sale price because that's their job on the line, trying to help you who's just being a pretentious twat. So, I, and I had this. Funny story. Not really funny. I was working at Dunham's. By the way, fuck Dunham's. And I had this guy. He was a police officer. He had to announce to me that he was a police officer. I was working at Dunham's as, you know, a checkout clerk. Cashier, they call him. And this this police officer, off-duty police officer, comes in with his daughter's soccer shoes. I think they were soccer. Some sort of sports shoes. And they were tore the fuck up. They'd been used. But they were starting to fall apart. So there was clearly a defect in them. Now, according to company policy, I can't accept a return on said shoes without the receipt. He didn't have the receipt. See where the problem is? See where the friction began? And he was adamant that I was just going to take the shoes back. And I was adamant to him, no matter how many times he told me he's a police officer, that company policy says I can't take those shoes back because that's my ass. You know, he just wanted to exchange them, which is fine, but still need a receipt. I need to know those shoes came from our store. Not you bought them online or you bought them at a competitor and you're trying to get a free pair of shoes out of us. And we went around and around for 10 minutes. Thankfully, it was in the middle of like a late shift. It was like, it was like a Wednesday or Thursday and the place was fucking dead. But he just would not let it go. He was going to get those shoes, which is fine. But I stood my ground and said, I, I can't help you. I can't. I can call my manager and you can talk to him, but I can't help you. Company policy. And what was great was the company policy was laminated and taped to the counter, like just off to the side. And I pointed right at it, right at the line. No returns allowed without a receipt. I can't do anything for you. But he... I'm going to get... Okay, you go right ahead. You talk to my manager. You, you go do that. My manager at the time was a guy named Tim. Great guy. He's a great guy. And he went... He spent a half hour with this guy. He went back to the back where the computers were. And he looked up this guy's receipt. Because he's a local police officer. He's in there all the time buying sports equipment. Looked up this guy's receipt to find out if he had actually bought those shoes here. He had... And with that knowledge, Tim gave him an exchange on those pair of shoes. 
And I rang those shoes up. I did the exchange. I gave the guy this receipt and said, I'm sorry, I couldn't help you. It wasn't within my power to do so. I was just doing my job. He's like, eh, all right, I understand that you were just doing your job. I just needed these shoes for my little girl. I'm um, okay. I, it's no hard feelings. I just, I couldn't help you. And I have no problem. And I, had no, and I told the managers this. I have no problem telling the customer no. I have no problem telling the customer, you need to leave. You don't get unruly with me. You don't. You don't. So don't get unruly with store clerks. They're just trying to do their job. Just trying to do their job. Like, why? You wouldn't want someone at your job getting unruly with you. And you just sitting there and taking it. Don't do it to other people. Anyway, fuck capitalism. Because that's created an environment where we have people that are just unruly and are unruly rude to other people. So, back to the economy and when it tanked. High-paying jobs have not only rebounded, but those workers have also been relatively safer. Hence the K, you know, one line just kept going, two lines just bottomed the fuck out. As they are at lower risk of contracting the virus due to a greater ability to work from home. All those office people that are working from home that are now being forced to go back to work because fucking President Joe Biden says, fuck you, get back to work because my puppet masters say we want you back in the office. And the whole point of the back in the office thing is just so middle management has something to do. That's it. So people can be afraid of their jobs. When they're working at home, they're just as productive, if not more so, than they were in the office. And they're happy. They're happy. But the problem is, the problem is, with a happy employee, is that if you make them unhappy, you don't get to see what they're doing. You don't get to see them looking for other jobs. You don't get to see them accepting other jobs and going to interviews because they're not in the office. All of this is a form of control. They just want to control you. That's why you're a slave. You're paid. So it's not like, you know, 1800s slavery, but you're still a slave because they will lord your job over you. They will hold it over the pit of oblivion and say, if you don't do what I tell you to do, if you don't take this abuse, you're fired. You will have nothing. I will ruin you. That's like putting a gun to someone's head and going, if you don't do this, I'm going to fucking shoot you. And then actually pulling the trigger because you don't care. You just want them to produce so that you can make your bonuses happen. That's it. You don't care about these people. You don't care that they're human beings with lives and families and they're suffering. You don't fucking care. You just want money. You just want this intangible thing that we created. Sure, you can hold it in your hand as paper and metal, but it means nothing. It means nothing. Did life begin? Was, was life going, going before the invention of money? Absolutely. Absolutely. On the trade and barter system. I've already talked about this. Will life continue when money is gone? Absolutely. Absolutely. We are the only species on this planet, on this planet, that have decided that objects have a value. You know what has a value in the wild? 
Food. Shelter. Fucking. Those three things have value in the wild. And by food, I mean, you know, stuff to eat and drink. Three things. The primal ingredients to life continuing on this planet. Food. Shelter. Sex. None of that is money. None of that is this intangible, insatiable greed for more. An animal in the wild eats till they're full. It doesn't gorge itself until it's too fat to move because then it becomes food. Nature doesn't say you can't sleep here. Nature doesn't do that. Nature doesn't say give me food to sleep here. Give me something to sleep here. Nature doesn't do that. The fish in the sea don't need to go find a place to call fish home. Yes, I understand there's reefs. I understand smaller fish live with enemies and all that. I've seen Finding Nemo, okay? The vast majority of the fish in the world do not, do not need a home. Their home is the fucking ocean. Wolves have their dens. Shelter. They're not paying anybody to go there. They'll fucking eat you if you go there. But they're not paying anybody. And the continuation of our species via reproduction, a.k.a. sex. Nowhere in that is greed. Nowhere in that is money. Nowhere in that is the top 1%. Nowhere in that is humanity. Because we've lost it. We've lost our humanity. We are mindless drones plugging away because someone convinced us it was a good idea. Because otherwise we would die. We are working ourselves to death. To live. If that doesn't seem cruelly ironic, then I don't know what irony is. And maybe I don't. Maybe I don't. I'm not. I'm not that smart. But think about that. Think about how we we give up our life. We give up the best years, the best health we have for the means of continuing to live. And I think of people that they go out and they travel and they go and they experience and they have fun and they make memories. And I go, that's what life should be. Without, without the 40-hour the quote-unquote grind, that's what life should be. Going out, seeing, experiencing, living, living. Earning a wage isn't living. Needing the requirement of that wage for the goods and services needed to survive is not living. It's paying for your own death. That's it. That is the show for today. Ladies and gentlemen, today, tonight, this this second, this millennium. Oh, editing is going to be fun. But that is the show for today. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. Or you just wanted to listen to me talk. Either way is good. Uh, I'm your host, Will, and I will talk to you all later. Bye.